0: you In our Cognon Ministries video study of the Olivet Discourse, I mentioned the parables found in Matthew thirteen nineteen, in addition to the one that we studied in Matthew 22. Now, parables are very important in the Scriptures. They're often misunderstood or used to support doctrines, rather than viewing them as tools to help us understand the Lord's teaching. In the Gospels, our Lord makes extensive use of parables as one of his teaching tools. Sadly, many Bible teachers and individuals use these parables improperly or misapply them to biblical doctrinal teaching. Because so many people have based their prophetic teachings solely upon some of these parables, it's very important to know how to properly interpret a parable. Therefore, I have created this brief CMI Bible Help Study to enable you to better understand and apply a biblical parable in your study of God's Word. Now, literally, the word parable in the Greek means a placing of one thing by the side of another. In other words, to bring something alongside of. That's what the para is in the parable term. Thus, a parable is a short story that uses familiar events to illustrate a religious or an ethical point. It's one of many literary devices such as allegory, comparisons, metaphors, similes that are used to tell a story and to get the point across to the listeners. A biblical parable places a spiritual truth ...beside common everyday things and events that relate to the lives of the hearers. In other words, the parable teller takes some common experience or event in the average person's life... ...and uses that listener's understanding of those common events or experiences to illustrate a deeper truth... ...or perhaps an idea that is not in their understanding or in the experience of those who are listening to the parable. So it brings us, takes the common things, brings them alongside the spiritual truth to help them to understand. For example, when Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees, he used familiar scriptures to help them understand the new point or teaching he was making to them. For example, for the world of the Pharisees, theirs was a world that was immersed in scriptures. Thus, Jesus used scripture to illustrate or teach a deeper, perhaps brand new concept to the Pharisees. But when Jesus was speaking to farmers, he illustrated his teaching with farming terms, such as seeds, soil, and sheep. Thus, he placed the familiar world of his listeners beside the unfamiliar spiritual truths that he wanted them to learn. As we shall see, the listeners were not always expected to understand what he taught. For understanding only comes to those with spiritual eyes and spiritual ears. It was only when the Lord spoke to his disciples that he carefully explained a parable's meanings. In Matthew chapter 13, in verses 11 and 16 and 17, Jesus told them that the secrets were... In, again, Matthew 13, beginning verse 11, He answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. Looking at verse 16, But blessed are your, notice, eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For verily I say unto you, that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which you see and have not seen them, to hear those things which you hear and have not heard them. You see that? Many prophets and righteous men have desired to see these things and to hear them, but they didn't hear them. Matthew 13 is filled with parables, parables that even today are being discussed and debated about what they mean but you have to have spiritual eyes and ears to even begin to study them. Now think about what Jesus just said here in Matthew 13, verse 17. What we are now studying is what many righteous people before us have yearned to see and to hear. We have a great privilege today. We have God's word. We can study it. The Lord can guide us and help us understand it. As with so many of the Lord's actions, his speaking in parables also served another purpose. As I've stressed in my course on the Olivet Discourse, his speaking in parables was to fulfill prophecy. Remember how many times, if you've taken the course, I have stated carefully what it says in Matthew 13, verse 35. He said that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things which have, not, have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. You see that? He spoke in parables to fulfill prophecy. What prophecies? Well, Psalm 78.2 is an example, and there's other passages also. 78.2 says, of the Lord, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old. In other words, uh, not easily understood sayings or perhaps sayings that hadn't been told before. Once again, the importance of studying and teaching prophecy is emphasized. There is a link between prophecy and, of course, these parables. To neglect or to ignore prophecy, as so many are doing today, allows them to ignore or not understand significant parts of God's teaching. The need to correctly understand parables is essential to the student of prophecy. Recognizing this, it's very important for the student of prophecy to carefully follow the simple rules for interpreting parables. For every parable presents a central truth, and we need to merely discover or study to see what it is. But if we aren't careful, we might read more into a parable than the Lord intended, or we might miss the truth entirely. The way to begin your study of any parable is by reading it five to ten times, so that you're quite familiar with the whole story. It should become something almost like memorize, so to speak, by reading it enough, you really get immersed into it. Now, I would also add that in addition to reading it five to ten times, it's very important to read the chapter before and the chapter after the parable in order to understand more of the context. Once you have read it five, ten times, you are now ready to consider the four essential elements to a parable. That first essential element is the circumstances surrounding the parable. Consider what prompted the need to give a parable. In my video lesson on the Olivet Discourse in Lesson 3, I went into extensive detail about the circumstances of the marriage feast parable in Matthew 22. Basically, it was the week of the Passover, and the Lord had just presented himself to Israel as its king. Christ's parable was addressed to Israel's chief priests and the Pharisees, who were on the point of rejecting him as as the promised Messiah, the Messiah from God that had come to establish his kingdom. The second essential element is the essential details and what they represent in the parable. Differentiate the parable's essential details from those non-essential details. Now let me explain. Essential details always point the hearer to that central truth. Whereas non-essential details are only needed to help the story flow, if you will, and to keep the hearer's attention. So determine what the essential details stand for and represent. Now, quite honestly, this may require study of resource materials. An in-depth study to gather enough information to help you separate the essentials from the non-essential details. The third essential element is the original hearer's mindset. We need to put ourselves back 2,000 years ago and think like the people of Jesus' day, those first hearers of the parable. In order to do this, we need to consider the story from the religious, cultural sociological viewpoints of their time. This way we eliminate the modern contextualization of the central truth. And finally, the last element, the fourth essential element, is the central truth to be gained. As you read and ponder the parable in the context of its original circumstances and its surrounding culture, ask the Holy Spirit to help you understand what the story's essential details represent how they are used to present a central truth. You might say, is the truth that you determine, has it, is it consistent with the other teachings in God's words? It'll never be a teaching all by itself. It must be consistent. Therefore, you must compare Scripture to Scripture, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Okay, those are the four essential elements that I've given to you very briefly. Now, let us go in more depth to see what, how each of these essential elements can apply as we study a parable in our class here together. All right, now we're going to look in depth, if you will, at those four elements. Remember, the first essential element involves the circumstance that prompted the parable. Now, this step is often skipped by many students of the Bible. In their haste to study the parable, they can't wait. They consider the circumstance of little importance or insignificant. This could well be a fatal mistake in your understanding of a parable if you follow after them. You cannot take a parable and isolate it from its context when it was proclaimed. Something caused the Lord to switch from a narrative and tell the parable. You need to answer, what was it? After rereading the chapters before the parable and the chapters after the parable, write out the answer to this following question. Why did the Lord stop what he was doing and speak the parable to the listeners? What caused him to do that? If you can't answer that, you're not ready for even the second step. Now, I've already referred to our video that goes in depth into the circumstances of the marriage parable of Matthew 22. So again, I'm just going to summarize the circumstances that led up to the Lord giving this parable. This way, it will enable you to really drop in and begin your study of this parable that I'm using for the example. During the three years of the Lord's public ministry, His popularity had been drawing increasingly greater attention and crowds. Therefore, the people eagerly clung to every word he spoke. Now, the religious leaders, they feared that Jesus was displacing their leadership and authority. If his popularity continued to grow, their little kingdom and their mutually beneficial relationship with Rome could come to an end. In Matthew 21, verse 15, it tells us that they had clearly seen the wonderful things that he had done. In other words, they had seen the very clear messianic signs that he, the Messiah, would fulfill. Look at Matthew 21, and verse 15. And let's go back to 14. Uh, Well, the context. 13 And he said unto me, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. And verse 15 When the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were sore displeased. They're sore displeased. They had witnessed his authoritative actions at the temple. They had just seen a healing. They had seen all these things. And now they were brought to a point to make a decision whether or not to accept him as the Messiah. For the evidence confirming his identity as Messiah was absolutely clear and visible. Now, for the general populace, Jesus was the conquering king, bringing relief from Roman oppression. John records in John 12, verses 13 and 15, To many he was a healer of the sick, or a provider of food. And to many it appeared the kingdom was about to come. Was this it, they thought, and so the excitement grew. The same thought, according to Luke, in chapter 17, was on the Pharisees' minds as well. For in verse 20 we read, And when he demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, The kingdom cometh not with observation, but is among you. In other words, he said, Look around you and see the proofs that I've given. See the actions. Is this not the coming of the kingdom? Of course, we know scripturally that until the people as a nation had accepted him as king, the kingdom could not come. But he had simply said, look around you, to the leadership. But they didn't accept that. Now, at the presentation, what we call Palm Sunday, the chief priests, the Pharisees, the leaders of the people, had only to consider the three years of ministry and realize what was happening. Furthermore, these kingdom expectations were supported by the teaching of many Jewish rabbis of the day. They taught that the advent of the Messiah would be celebrated by a feast that would usher in the kingdom of heaven. For many, this week, the week of Palm Sunday and the Crucifixion, was the week that might have been that feast. For all present but the hard-hearted leaders, this was the long-awaited moment of triumph for Israel, and they were there. These leaders, who should have known better than anybody there, instead, they questioned Jesus' authority. Questioning his authority and who gave it to him, at this point, he responds by quoting the scriptures of the cornerstone and and their reaction to the cornerstone sent from God. In other words, he accused them of their refusal of him as sent from God as the Messiah. He then turns and he illustrates the long history, not just this rejection, but the long history looking back of the rejection of God's kingdom by the leadership of Israel. How does he illustrate this? He uses this parable to summarize the actions of the leaders of Israel throughout its history. Now, we've talked about the circumstances. Recognizing these circumstances that the Lord then offered the parable, we're now ready to analyze the parable beginning with its essential details. The essential details of the parable. Now, remember that a biblical parable parable contains a central spiritual truth that is clothed, if you will, in a story containing details that point to that central truth. This cloaking of the truth by our Lord was done so that people who genuinely desired to know the truth of God would be blessed by understanding, while those who were only seeking entertainment would be left in the dark. When Jesus told parables, in some of his parables, such as the parable of the sower, for example, Jesus pointed out the essential details of the story. You didn't even have to question what they were. And significantly, he gave their meaning to his disciples. Now, in all parables, by contrast, there are non essential details of the parable that are only there to help the story. They're to help the listeners and hearing and keep their attention. But those non essential details should never be treated as truths that are to be learned or deciphered in terms of a doctrine. Some people think that every detail of a parable must represent something significant. They do not. I would also warn at this point that you should never base a doctrinal truth solely upon a parable and its details. Parables may illustrate Bible doctrines, and they do, but they are not intended to define them. Our study of the details of the parable begins with a differentiation of the essential details from the non-essentials. We have to do this. We do this simply by making a list of the details of the parable. We create on this list two columns. One column we could label essential details. The other column would be obviously non-essential details and we're going to go through the parable and see how we can differentiate each detail and see which column it fits in to see if it's absolutely necessary to the story or could the parable still be understood without it. You may want to try reading the parable out loud and leave out what you believe to be non-essential details. See if it still teaches you something and clearly does it. If properly done, the parable with only essential details will read more like a a lengthy, if you will, proverb than a story because those non-essential details are what sort of develops it into a full story. It's the non-essentials that keep the story flowing and they hold the interest of the casual listener. For example, in Matthew 22, in the parable of the marriage feast, marriage is obviously, if you will, an essential detail. In Matthew 22, and I think it's time we go to Matthew 22, we read in verse 2, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son, and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. And again he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden. Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen, my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. Okay, in these four verses, <clears throat> we clearly see that marriage is an essential to this whole story. That's the whole background and basis. But do the oxen, the fatlings, and all things are ready, are they important to the story? Are they essentials or non-essentials? Well, they would be non-essentials. For you could have simply said, all things are ready. Or in fact, you could even leave them out and let the reader assume them <clears throat> Excuse me. some details may be unfamiliar also as you read them and this is going to require you to go to resource books to give you more understanding of what each detail meant in Jesus day to understand if it's essential or non-essential there are many excellent books out there that will help you one such book is the life and times of Jesus the Messiah by Alfred Edersheim Excellent book-giving backgrounds of life in those days. There are other books that you can get on the culture of the day. I have several. This is a rather complex peoples of the Old Testament world. But there are many helpful books on culture during Jesus' day. So you may have to go and study the culture of each detail given to see if it's essential or not. Now, having done that study, you may find an essential detail that you didn't think was essential, or you may have found that actually a detail you thought was essential was non-essential. So always be alert that you, you've got to dictate, be dictated by what the truth is, not what you want it to be. Now, when Jesus spoke to people, remember, he began with those things with which they were familiar, and they're going to be brought alongside of the spiritual truth for which they wouldn't be necessarily familiar. We can't put our culture into these words. We have to understand how those people of Jesus' day understood these words. So having done this, review your list of essential details and determine what each detail contributes to the parable. In other words, why is it there? If you have properly and thoughtfully done this, they should all point to the single central spiritual truth that is placed alongside of the common details of the story. Again, I stress, this takes hard work and study. But I always remind students of the Bible what God said. He said, God's workman must study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. All right, I've told you how to do it let me give you in this example from Matthew 22. We're going to look first at our column of essential details, and then we'll go into the non-essentials. So we look here in Matthew 22. We see in verse 1, first thing we read, a certain king. So we know we have a king. And there's going to be a marriage for his son. So we have that the son is to be married. The king is obviously going to be the host of the uh, wedding, and the king is the father of the son. So those are essentials. We next see that he sent forth servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding. They would not come. So servants are sent out to the wedding to bring the guests to the weddings, and we find out they aren't going to come. We then see... um, Again, verse 4, he sent forth other servants. So we have another group of servants saying, tell them which are bidden. Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fatlings are killed. All things are ready. Come unto the marriage. So we have other servants. It goes to, obviously, them that are bidden. That's the guests that are to come to the wedding, but they refuse. So where are we now? We have a king. We have the son who's going to be married. We have servants sent out to get those guests that were invited. Those guests refused to come. And obviously the king is going to respond to it. Um, In verse 5, but they made light of it, that's the guests, and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. Now, here's the king, verse 7. When the king heard thereof, he was wroth, angry, and he sent forth his armies. See, we have a king here. He has armies. The fact that he has armies reflects on being the king. So that's essential to our story. He sends forth his armies. He destroys the murders and burned up their cities. Verse 8. Then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Then he gives them instruction, Go therefore into the highways, and as many as you shall find bid to the marriage. So the servants went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. So what do we have here? We have the king. He's got this wedding for his son. Those are essential. The servants have brought the people who have been invited, and they refuse to come. They are then sent out to go get more people that invite in them to the wedding, and these people are bad and good. And then we read the final part of the, the uh, parable in verse 11, when the king came to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. That's the guest was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away, cast him into outer darkness, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So we have a guest who has come and he refused the garments for the wedding. Now, real quickly, I'm going to list the non-essentials. I tended to skip over them pretty quickly. Non-essentials are the oxen, I've already said this, the fatlings that were killed and all things related to the wedding dinner. Of course, those are part of the story, and we would assume they would be there, but we don't have to read that. We read that they went out to the cities. Well, he's a king, therefore he's a kingdom, so it's logical. It's not essential to see their cities. Again, our logic would say they could go out to the cities. They're out to highways, well, that's nice. And again, it's just casual, non-essentials, but help fill in the stories. Now, here's what I'd suggest when you have your list of two columns. Try taking your list of essential details and see if you can give the parable and tell the parable using only the essential details. If you can, then you have the essential details. Let me give you an example of taking my list as I've developed it. I would summarize it this way. A king had a son to be married, and they sent servants to get the guests. Guests refused to come, and the king sent armies to punish refusing guests. Bad and good guests were now invited, but one guest came without the proper wedding garment, and he was dealt with. You see, in three sentences, I have condensed these 12 verses not because I want to condense them, but I've put it down to the essentials because it's the essentials that point to the central truth. We have to focus upon those details and temporarily set aside the extraneous information. And then we are then ready to understand the whole context of those people who heard the parable. And that gets us to the second, this essential aspect of the cultural mindset. In the Bible, Parables always were presented to a specific group of people. The details were familiar to that group of people in their daily lives. Nothing was given in terms of the details that they couldn't understand. For the original audience, the everyday things made complete sense to them. But sadly now, 2,000 years have come by and we've created a great cultural divide between their world and ours in many ways. Therefore, again stress, it's essential for the serious Bible student to learn about the culture and customs of the time when the parable was given, if he or she wants to fully understand it and recognize the truth. Let me give you an example. Now, I treated this as a non-essential detail, and that's the word dinner, In Matthew 22, dinner isn't essential, but in the culture of the day, it didn't mean dinner as we think of dinner, the formal dinner. It meant a brunch. Thus, we know that this meal was in the morning. This was a typical cultural activity for the wedding feast to have this brunch in the morning. Now, it's not essential to the central truth, but it is interesting, is it not? Furthermore, we must understand now, in that day, that the groom's father gave the brunch and he provided garments to the guest to wear. Now, understanding that cultural aspect of providing the guests with the formal feast wear is important. It is important because of the guest who refused the garment. The people who came to a wedding in those days did not just choose to wear whatever was comfortable for them or whatever they thought would be good enough. You see, this explains why the guest, without the formal wedding garment, was questioned and dealt with by the king. That guest was insulting his host, who happens to be the king in this case, because he refused the formal wear and he he came just as he was and it actually reflected a rebellion to the host. So while the the actual garments are not essential details, the fact that a guest refused the garments and understanding the cultural background of those garments, we now find that that guest is a significant detail in the parable. Without this cultural insight, we also probably wouldn't understand the king's action and why he took such a, an extreme action, if you will, where it says here, he says, bind him hand and foot, take him away, cast him into outer darkness. So now we understand that. We've combined the essential detail of the guest who refused the, the garment with the cultural understanding of why that garment was significant and provided for him so there was no excuse. And we can see that this king responded when all the others happily put on the formal wear. Once we have understood the circumstances, the essential details, and the original hearer's mindset, we can determine that central truth of the parable. I'm going to give you my conclusion. I would challenge you as an assignment, if you will. You go and you study it and see if you reach the same conclusion I have. So here's, here's my conclusion of what all these essential details, the culture, the circumstances have led us to conclude. That is that God the Father, the King, the Host, and Father of the Groom had been inviting Israel, its people, and leaders to accept his kingdom on earth all through the history of Israel. This was symbolized by a marriage between them and his son, the marriage being the familiar to them, something they all had experienced and been at marriage feasts. This was a marriage between them and his son. The truth revealed that the kingdom was first and foremost about a relationship, not just a government. Oh, the kingdom of heaven has a relationship governmentally, yes, but this parable is focusing on the relationship. The familiar idea of the meal and garments revealed the condition of that relationship. It was the acceptance of God the Father's provision and the lifestyle he wanted them to follow. That lifestyle is the covenant living that was agreed with the covenant way back in the Old Testament under Moses that the Israelis would follow and then the Father would be their king. For the scriptures call him the King of Israel. You see, God said, you accept my invitation and then you accept my provision for you and you live the lifestyle I have laid out for you in the scripture. The rejection of these conditions meant exclusion for everyone who would understand that those not abiding by the conditions would, of course, be excluded. God made that clear. You see, being a citizen of the kingdom was not just about being born Jewish and living in the land of Israel. It was far more than that. It required the acceptance of the invitation by the individual under God the Father's conditions, not their own conditions. The consequence to reject God the Father's conditions, to reject God the Father's Son, was described in the terrible terms of being bound hand and foot and cast into the darkness. Now, once accepting the kingdom, the joys of a marvelous marriage awaited the nation of Israel and its people. I hope this study help class has helped you to better understand some of the ideas of parables. I hope it's offered you some thoughts on how best to approach parables and how to correctly analyze them. Please join us again when we offer another CMI Bible Study Helps class. Until then, may the Lord bless you mightily, and join us again either here or in the air. Yeshua returns to Israel